Hi, I'm Kelly. And I'm Sophie. We're We're two broad-talking politics. We're two Midwestern moms who love politics. We've always been Democrats, but we got more politically active after the 2016 debacle. On our episodes, we talk to activists and candidates and authors and directors of nonprofits. To help us all figure out, where do we go from here? Check us out at twobroadstalkingpolitics.com. Or anywhere podcasts are found. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth, and Karen is taking exams. You can send her a tweet and wish her luck at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Susan Blaustein. I'm the founder and executive director of Women Strong International. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, it's uh, really great to talk to you. Dr. Blastine, can you tell me what is Women Strong? Sure. We're a consortium of nonprofits around the world working with urban women and girls to help eradicate extreme poverty really through women's agency and working on the issues of health and education and economic empowerment and reducing gender-based violence. We set up this interview because I was contacted by um, the content strategist from your organization. And what she said was that Women Strong is a feminist and rights-based approach to philanthropy and girls' leadership, education, and advancement. Can you tell me what you mean that it's a feminist and rights-based approach? Yes. Well, I would say it's a feminist and rights-based approach to international development. So the idea is that women and girls, kind of wherever they are in the world, whatever their setting and whatever their income level, know what they need in order to thrive, right? We've seen this over and over again. So instead of being top-down development or top-down philanthropy, really, we're trying to flip the script and give these women and girls a voice, help raise their voices so that those in positions of power can hear what it is that that they need. And then what Women Strong does is to help leverage the technical and financial resources that can enable them to get what they need and to thrive. So it's philanthropic in the sense that we do make grants to organizations that are doing great work and have great ideas, particularly in these areas of health, education, economic empowerment, and violence reduction. And we welcome others to do the same, either through us or direct to these organizations. And we've created learning labs that we're just getting started now to help enable these conversations among groups all over the world. So from South Central LA to Gaza to Southern India about how what they have found that works in reducing violence or in getting women on their feet economically. That sounds very interesting. And the other thing, I just wanted to congratulate you. I read that you just won an award. It was presented to you by Ban Ki-moon. Oh, I was so honored. Thank you so much. He is a wonderful man. You know, the award was named for him because he was a champion of women's empowerment when he was secretary general. And he, we were lucky enough, Chelsea Clinton and I were the awardees this year, and we were honored to receive it directly from Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. And he made a powerful address at the event in support of women's development and women's entrepreneurship. So it was very cool. Thank you. If that address is available online, we'll link it in the show notes. So I was wondering if you could tell me more about the cross-learning model. I was reading a little bit about it uh, on your website about uh, women from Haiti interacting with women from India, learning best practices. That sounds very fascinating. Can you tell me about that? 
Absolutely. So that's really what we want to engender because all these groups are off doing great work, right, in their corners of the world. But no one ever hears about it. For one thing, the people in southern India are speaking Tamil and the people in northern Haiti are speaking Haitian Creole. At the request of the Haitians and the Indians, we brought the Indian group, the leadership, to northern Haiti. And they helped them think through their model for economic empowerment in northern Haiti. They're farmer women. There's no value chain. They can't get any improved value to their coffee that they pluck from the tree. And so the Indians were helping them think that through because they have a very successful economic empowerment model in the 14 Indian states where our organization there works. In turn, what the Indians took back was an understanding of the whole mobile women's health clinics model that we have in India, but also in Haiti and in our Ghana settings. And I just spoke with the Indian group on the phone on Friday, and they were telling me that they've introduced mother's clubs, taking off from what they learned from what the Haitians are doing. So that was just very interesting to me. So another cross-learning opportunity is with girls' education. And what we've done, and I can share it with you as well, the link to our new Girls Clubs Handbook, which is really a compilation of the work that our India, Kenya, Ghana, and Haiti consortium members have done with girls and with boys in giving them the protective assets and the skills they need in order to thrive in the world. So not the reading, writing, arithmetic, but all the other stuff, relationships, financial literacy, sports and nutrition, sexual reproductive health. And it's not just what our projects have done, but we've also borrowed from best practices around the world and scholarly journals and population council and USAID and whatnot. But really the way of doing it, the way of setting up a girls or boys club is very much based on what our programs do. And so what we want is for you who's working in Lima or in, you know, Tegucigalpa, Honduras, to be able to set up your girls club based on your own adaptation, you know, to your own needs, that is, of what our projects do, because why should you have to reinvent it for yourself? And so that's this notion of cross-learning and cross-pollination sort of of ideas, because obviously you in Tegucigalpa or in Lima may have ideas that we need to learn from, too. So that's why we're trying to put these groups together and to serve as a convener in learning labs that can encourage and enable this kind of cross-learning. And we'll do that, you know, one way is through a publication like our handbook, another way is through webinars, another way is through in-person convenings, which is so powerful, right, for women. And we've done that too. We we all went to India. We've all come to our project in D.C. to learn from them. And the project directors and some of their staff have met in the States a number of times. So we just feel it's really important to share, to learn from each other, and to support each other in this endeavor because, again, we're trying to elevate these voices, right, of those who often don't have power but who really do have the answers at their disposal. They're just lacking the means with which to execute those answers. Just taking a step back, I was curious, how does uh, Women Strong find the groups that need help or decide what issues to focus on? And how do you find the people who would benefit from this cross-learning model? Originally, I ran a project out of Columbia University for a dozen years called the Millennium Cities Initiative. And when that project closed, it was a a proof of concept of the Millennium Development Goals, the UN's goals that preceded the Sustainable Development Goals. So when the Sustainable Development Goal agenda took over, our project closed, all those sort of proof of concept models at Columbia closed. Just for people who don't know, and I have a little bit of a policy background. I'm not sure. What do you mean by proof of concept? Do you mean like, did the goals, do we meet our goals? Or do we mean, were the goals well defined? What, what does that mean? 
We met a lot of goals, but the goals set up by the UN are very general. And what we were trying to do with these, what we called proof of concepts, which are little sort of on the grounds experiments, was to show how this can work. How can it work in a secondary city in Kenya or Nigeria or Mali or Senegal to achieve these goals? What would it take? How far off track are they from achieving the goals in maternal mortality reduction, in coverage of HIV AIDS, in universal primary education, etc. There's ones about the environment and, and, you know, everything else. So what we tried to do was to work in those settings, in municipal settings, to do needs assessments and figure out how off track they were. And what we found, you know, at the time, even though the rich world didn't come through for the poor one, even though the tops of governments didn't come through for the bottoms at the municipal level, that the women and girls on the ground always knew what they needed. And so that was kind of the beginning of trying to test it. What would happen if we listened first and foremost, and then at the end of the day, always to the women on the ground in these, what we work in urban settings, to hear what they need, to hear what's working, to hear what might be tweaked. So we started with our programs in Ghana and Kenya, which were doing a lot of work. We didn't want to abandon those women and girls in those cities. It's in Kumasi, the second largest city in Ghana, and the third largest city in Kenya, Kisumu. And then we expanded it to other geographic and sociopolitical context, so to southern India. And, and in those cases, we did a lot of due diligence to find organizations that basically were aligned with ours and either had women's programs or wanted to build them out. So that was in southern India, northern Haiti, and then in southeast Washington, D.C., which, although it's literally in the shadow of the nation's capital, may as well be a world away as far as the opportunities for the families there. And that was sort of the beginning. Now, as I say, as we move into this different phase, of many more groups that hopefully can do knowledge sharing around girls' education, around what works in economic empowerment. We'll be sending out requests for proposals. We'll be recruiting organizations that are doing great work. Right now, we're looking for wonderful organizations working on those issues in New York City. Half our staff and half our board are there. So we're shifting for our U.S. group to New York. But it needn't be New York. As I say, we're really interested in having presenters from all over the country. What's working in Detroit? and violence reduction and how can those people talk to those working in Baltimore and in other parts of the country? How can we use our human rights education curriculum that we've developed for middle and high schoolers across the South and get different networks of people working together on these things? Because again, all we're trying to do is get you know knowledge that works into the hands of those who can use it, you know, and it's all open source. It's all about participation and inclusion and building basically and powered civil society. When you were assessing whether or not the Millennium Development Goals have been met, you were able to identify more problems that needed to be solved and, and more groups that could use help. And that's how Women Strong came about? When that project ended, we decided to stick with those women that were doing great work and then to take it to other settings across the globe and to continue with the issues that they brought to our attention. The areas of strength in the projects, the nonprofits with which we work are in in these areas that I've mentioned, girls' education, violence reduction, both community-based solutions, as well as, you know, other best practices from around the globe that we've implemented, and then economic empowerment, and also in 
women's health. So we have these mobile women's health clinics in India, Ghana, and Haiti, as I mentioned, and different solutions for different settings. And they don't all work in every one, right? That's the whole thing is that sort of what might work in Western Kenya may or may not work in central Ghana, but it's worth learning about and trying and seeing, oh, how might I adapt this? So another example of cross-learning, we took the education coordinator from our Kenya project to Ghana, where we have a lot of girls' clubs, so that she could think about how to scale them back home. And some things translated and others didn't, because in Ghana, there's a different setup with regard to the public education sector, and there's more interest and willingness on the part of government to be a partner. She took back what it was that she could learn from and could adapt immediately, and then to think longer term in terms of their advocacy with the public education sector in Kenya, which is, you know, each country is obviously a different story. Here, for instance, in the States, the kinds of savings groups that you hear about and learn from micro savings and whatnot that can work to get women out of poverty, even declare themselves out of poverty as they do in our India project, just can't work here. You know, it means you can buy presents maybe for your kids at Christmas time, but it's not going to get you out of poverty. And so we're looking for other solutions in the states, whether in the form of worker cooperatives or community land trusts or different kinds of asset building insurance, you know, that, that is affordable and that can help women feel more stable economically and begin to think, you know, beyond their immediate needs. What is a mobile women's health clinic? If you think about people who don't have ready access to care, you know, they can be sick, but they don't know it, right? And the sicker they get, the harder it is to treat what they've got. So our mobile women's health clinics are designed to be sort of the front line of care, to reach into communities that may not have access to care. Either the women are too poor, they're too busy running back and forth from the farm to the market and selling their wares and then going home and taking care of their families and maybe getting their kids to the clinic, but they don't have time to take care of themselves. And in India and Ghana, there is a robust public health sector that wants to reach and is obliged by by law to reach the poorest of the poor, but they can't quite do it. They don't know where they are. They just don't have the staff and the outreach to do it, but they're quite willing to have NGOs do it, nonprofits do it. And so ours go into the, these communities, let people know there's going to be a mobile clinic. They show up with public health nurses in these cases. They do testing for anemia and they do uh, all kinds of, of women's health screenings for breast and cervical cancer, basic sort of vitals, information, hypertension, diabetes these non-communicable diseases. And then in our Ghana project, we have electronic medical records on all these women. So we can say to them, you know, there's a free diabetes clinic next Thursday. You got to be there or a, a hypertension clinic, or are you taking your medicine? So we follow up with WhatsApp groups. We make sure they come in. In the Haiti clinic, there is also participation on the Haiti public health sector and PEPFAR, the American program that works with HIV AIDS reduction and uh, public health across the world that was initiated by George W. Bush. And in Haiti, you get a slip that says, okay, you need your medicine. You go to the clinic and you'll get the medicine there. You'll be seen by a doctor. You'll be sent on to a different hospital to a specialist. It's different in Haiti because it's a little bit more rugged and more rural and there's less government presence. And so our consortium member there really provides all the services up to a certain point. But these people are so remote. They have a 10-hour walk to the hospital 
people. And so it's really helpful if the clinic comes to them and meets them closer to where they are. So again, these are for people who generally don't have the time, don't have the money, don't have insurance to be seen. And what we'd like to be able to do is to bring it to, you know, inner city America and reservations in America so that those people who haven't had the opportunity to be seen can be seen and where there's a linkage to the institutions that can treat them should, in fact, they be sick and need further care. Because there's nothing worse than having a, you know, mammogram van that goes around and tests people. And then you say, oh, by the way, you need a follow up and there's no place to go because you don't have insurance and no one's going to see you. Right. So we need the whole sort of set of institutional linkages before we start out just to be responsible about it. And that's what we've got in these other countries. So it's a, a great example of where, you know, sort of advanced industrialized countries can learn from developing ones in terms of reaching those who have a right to health but don't actually have access to it. Yeah, I had another question about the uh, the girls clubs. How is the curriculum developed and is it adapted or changed differently for different cultures? Yes, it is changed and it's led differently. So in India, they are peer led. They're girls who lead girls, uh, older ones who lead the younger ones. And it takes place after school. Same thing in Haiti. In Ghana and Kenya, our girls clubs are part of the public school day. And they've seen the need for improved what they call girl child education. You know, there was a one of the Millennium Development Goals was about, you know, getting and keeping girls girls in school because girls traditionally have dropped out. They've been used as farm workers or babysitters or whatever, and, and they haven't been prioritized for getting a further education. But it is understood now as a national goal in basically all countries. And so we've developed the curriculum again on the basis of what our programs do. And ours starts with a girl's dreams. So what do you want your future to be? How do you envisage yourself as an adult? What is your picture of your best life. And these are girls in our settings, mostly 10 to 16, I would say, but they're different ones at different ages. So I'm generalizing here. But then the curriculum unfolds. It's about self-esteem building. It's about relationship building. It's about communicating with your peers, your elders, your parents. It's about sex. It's about different kinds of approaches to the other sex or same sex and how to handle them. It's about violence. It's about financial literacy and and it's kind of a barter system. You learn financial literacy through doing things, what we would call community service in exchange for goods and services that you actually need but can't afford in a in a money economy. So all of these things then take you back to looking again, if you treat this as a through curriculum, so you work your way through from one chapter one to chapter 16, taking you again to your dreams. Okay, I said I wanted to be a nurse. I said I wanted to be a policeman. How can I get there from here? Or I said some of the girls say, I want, to, I want to be a lawyer and work on human rights, then what do I need to do? How far do I need to get in school? What kinds of schools are available to me? Or how well do I have to place in my eighth grade exams in order to go on to national level high school that can get me into a college or a law school? All these kinds of very concrete planning about one's dreams, essentially, and then ways sort of to not to be derailed. It's a lot of fun. There are games and drawings and exercises along the way. And one of the ones I remember 
is a, a sort of a journey. So your journey is toward your dreams, but on the way, you know, along the river or whatever, you encounter crocodiles who may get in your way or big rocks that get in your way. And how do you move these different obstacles out of your way and not get distracted or derailed, perhaps by drugs or a pregnancy as a teen or whatever it is that could get in your way and just keep on going and find your way toward your dream, your parents' expectations of you, all that kind of stuff. And the drawings, as you'll see when I send you the link, are very kind of kid-friendly, user-friendly. And in our settings, the teachers are from the communities themselves. So we try to pick public school teachers or group leaders who come from these communities so they understand where the girls and boys are coming from. And they can also check up on them if they don't come to school for a couple of weeks or whatever. In a way, these teachers could have been these girls, probably were these girls, you know, and might have liked having the kind of resource that they're now making available to these girls. So we were just in Ghana. We introduced it to the ministry and they're very excited about it because there's a girl child education program, but they don't have a lot of curriculum for the girls. So hopefully this can prove useful to them. And we trained about 80 teachers in Ghana and about 100 in Kenya in the uses of this curriculum. And again, they can adapt it however they want. They don't have to do it chapter one through 16. If you're sitting in a refugee setting, you know, in uh, the Bacaw Valley in Lebanon with a bunch of Syrian and girls as an aid worker, you could just use the chapter on violence reduction, the chapter on financial literacy. It'll be downloadable module by module from our website soon after the first of the year. So that'll be wonderful to have it in the hands of many more people who can use it. I was curious about the structure of Women Strong. How is it funded? So far, we've had anonymous seed funding. We're looking for funding to diversify our funding, and we're, you know, we're always on the lookout for funding. We're a new organization, so it's hard at this point to get government funding or big foundation funding, but it's philanthropically funded. And then we, in turn, help to fund these dynamite innovative groups on the ground that are doing such good work. And so far, we found them through our own sort of recruitment and resources, as I mentioned, and then we'll be branching out and trying to include many more as time goes on over the next couple of years. On your website, you talked about you aim to provide women with these six essential needs, health, safety, shelter, education, economic empowerment, and urban development. How do you make decisions about where to send funding, like either among those six needs, prioritizing them, or, you know, different projects that come up that are different shelter projects or different safety projects? Like how do you, with limited resources, how do you pick what to prioritize? Well, again, it comes from the women themselves. So if, for instance, there's a great group that's working on shelter, working on housing, or, you know, doing advocacy around safe infrastructure or safe cities, then they would send in a proposal and we would review it. And maybe if we're, if it seems very promising, you know, work with them on it to improve it, figure out how they're going to uh, monitor their progress, what their indicators are going to be, how are, are the costs worked out and how do those align with their objectives. And then, you know, we would decide whether or not to fund that project or to fund a pilot of it or something like that. That's probably the way. Up until this point, we funded these organizations that have put forward very comprehensive proposals in multiple sectors. So in education, in economic empowerment, in violence reduction, some in shelter, others 
not, they may do other. So not every group does everything. And more and more, it'll be like a group that's working with girls that wants to do, you know, sort of a girls education curriculum or to try our handbook or to, to share with us what they're doing, you know, the curriculum they're using. And we would bring them into the learning lab on education. So it would just be in one of these sectors. But maybe, you know, someone working on education, is, it's also a lot about violence reduction or it's for girls who've been homeless or something. And violence is a, often a big piece of that or some of what we're seeing, you know, at the southern border with immigrant families. So there may be an overlap between the education and violence or violence and health, for instance, or returning again from a situation of violence and, and how to get into a business, how to sort of learn what to do to, to thrive and about economic justice and economic opportunity. So a group can participate in more than one area. And once they're part of the consortium, then they can participate in anything they want. They just may not get funded for all that, but they can certainly join in these webinars and get the materials and learn what they need to learn. Now, this is I'm jumping the gun here talking about these learning labs because we don't yet have the online platform in which to share materials. But we will in 2019. That's our plan. So for now, we've been working with these five organizations in multiple multiple sectors and sharing amongst them and then trying to get the word out, word out through these materials and publications we're getting out. And can you tell me more about the Making City Safe initiative? That was a campaign we ran last year for a number of months, really an advocacy campaign, just making the point that cities don't make themselves safe. You know, I teach about this actually at Columbia University, you know, about women in cities. And if you just think about humans in cities, you know, women are sort of a proxy for humans, right? All the needs that you have, whether you're carrying a stroller or you need a walker or what is it to ride on the subway as a woman if you're impaired, if you're feeling vulnerable? What at night makes one subway station safer than the next or one public bathroom in the middle of the day even? safer than the next? And what are the protections that women need? And urban planners don't think about these things. It just hasn't been on their agenda. For one thing, most urban planners and architects and engineers until the last generation and now have been male. It just hasn't been a priority. Our campaign was to make people kind of think about that. Hey, actually, I didn't feel safe last night. We went out after the concert and then walking home by myself, I just didn't feel safe. And what was that about? Was it the lack of street lighting? Is it the fact that there's a pedestrian overpass that I have to walk over alone if I'm in, you know, often that would be in a, in a developing world city, but it's also true in parts of New Jersey, you know, and sort of why is that? And why doesn't somebody think about me and look out for me and make sure that I'm safe, make sure that I can get to my job safely. And then if you think about what women, working women have to, I'm sure you know, you have a baby, you know, have to go through to get your child to the daycare, to get to your job. What if you have an elderly parent who needs a, a doctor's visit on the way? The time Time that women spend around the city doing these things that is often their burden. It's not the man's burden. He can spend those hours earning, but she spends them schlepping, excuse my <laughs> Jewish vernacular, you know, taking people to and from what it is that they need. So one wants cities to be safe for women. And that was sort of the spirit of our campaign last year was to help make planners and policymakers and municipal leaders, elected ones too, aware of these things and not just to talk about it, but to put their money where the mouth is in terms of the planning and the implementation, the building the infrastructure. 
It just strikes me as so interesting as we've talked about your organization. It's such a multidisciplinary approach because you're talking about urban planning, public safety, medical care, education. It, it seems like you're doing a lot at once, but I think that to me, a comprehensive approach is the way that we should be looking at problems. So because look, women are multidisciplinary, right? And just and so are cities. I mean, these are whole organisms we're talking about. Each one does include sort of women and cities. There's a public health component to that, and personal health component. There's an educational component. There's access and rights, as we were saying before, and opportunity. And so you can't really fix anything without touching these other interrelated areas. And so that's why we're spread a bit beyond where we're able, you know, with the sort of levels of implementation. But we, that's why we want more people who are doing great work in all of these areas to share what it is that they know and are doing and why we're able as Women's Strong to serve as a kind of convener of but both expertise sort of from the top down, that is proven experts, including urban planners who've thought about this, and there are many around the world, and also the women and girls themselves and what it is that they experience and solutions that they've dreamed up and that have worked for them in their own communities. So I think that kind of exchange, that kind of cross-cultural, cross-class, cross-levels of expertise or different kinds of levels of expertise exchange is, is really what we need if we're going to get this done. Otherwise, you know, the world world's just going to keep on going and people at the end of the year make their philanthropic gifts and feel a little bit better about things, but very little actually changes in terms of people's safety, in terms of people's access. And the reason we have a human rights education program is because there are protections out there for our human rights, but people don't experience these rights. And the, what does the right to clean water mean to you? What does it mean in New York City where they're lying about the levels of lead in your water? What does it mean in Kenya where you're going to get assaulted on the, or you may get assaulted on the way to the kiosk to buy water after dark? You know, these are our rights. And how can we we bring these home to our communities, regardless of our of our income level. And this is the kind of awareness that we would love everybody to have, whether you're male or female, rich or poor. But it sort of starts by raising awareness. If our listeners want to know more, they should go to your website. It's womenstrong.org. Any particular page there or... Oh, thank you. You know, our website needs sort of a facelift. We're in the process of revising it along so that we can get out the word about these learning labs. So I would say to stay tuned and to check in soon after the first of the year, certainly look at us. We're womenstrong.org and we will have our information there about where you can find our Girls Clubs Handbook and, um, you know, we can make all our stories about the wonderful work of the women and girls and our sites available to you. And we'd love for you to contribute as women and girls and men and boys around the country and around the world about your experience, you know, women leaders you've seen or women heroes whom you've emulated, who have inspired you. We have a blog and we publish guest contributors all the time. So please be in touch at info at womenstrongintlinternational.org. And we'd love to hear from you. And you can make a donation on your website. And also, is that the email address people should send to you? Because I heard you said that you're looking to do stuff domestically in the United States. So if, if someone has a project, they should let you know at that email address. 
Yes, absolutely. Please let us know. Tell us something. Send us your website if you have one or tell us what it is that you're doing or that you're aiming to do with what population. We'd, we would love to hear from you, particularly in these areas of women's health, girls' education and youth development, women's economic empowerment and violence reduction, GBV reduction. We'd very much love to hear from you. Again, it's info at womenstrongintl, so womenstronginternational.org. Do you have anything else that you want to add that you'd like people to know about Women Strong? No, I just think, you know, as we approach the end of the year and as we enter the next year, it's just so important to think about love, you know, and about outreach and compassion. And who embodies that more than women? I mean, it's sort of a Christmas message. It's in every religion, right? That the women are the mothers, the women are the light givers and the caregivers, and in many cases, the chief earners. And the wisdom held within women is often very profound and, you know, can be listened to and heeded. And obviously, there's so much respect for for women as mothers. But I think to understand that the knowledge there can really be impactful, that women can really lead is a very important message going into the new year. Just for our listeners, we're recording this episode on um, December 5th, but it's probably going to air in January. So definitely an interesting topic to think about as we go into the new year. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And Dr. Blaustein, is there any other way on the internet you'd like people to... Women Strong INTL is our Women Strong Twitter. Okay. And um, all of that is available. Our Twitter and Facebook page and Instagram, I think, are available from our website. Mm-hmm. Yes, then I'll link it in the show notes. And you can reach me directly at sblaustein at womenstrong.org. Great. Okay, so um, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for your wonderful questions and for your interest in our work at Women Strong. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.